0: This is the Future of Security Operations podcast, brought to you by Tynes. This show is dedicated to empowering SecOps leaders to reimagine how their teams work, so they can scale their security efforts and build a team that achieves more with less. In each episode, we'll learn from a security leader who has found a way to free their team from tedious manual tasks and remove the barriers that are preventing them from doing high-value strategic work that truly matters. We'll learn from their mistakes, distill their best practices, and leave you with actionable insights that you can immediately put to work with your team. I'm your host, Thomas Kinsler, COO and co-founder of Tines. Now, let's jump right into today's show. Hi, everyone, and thanks for listening to another episode of the Future of Security Operations podcast. Today, I'm speaking with Andy DeMichael, Director of Security Operations at Redis, Thanks for joining me today, Andy. Yeah, thanks for having me, and much appreciated. Yeah, great to have you on. Before we get started, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself, your background, and the work you do at Redis?
1: Sure, yeah. So right now, I'm the Director for Security Operations at Redis, and my background is really building security programs, namely security operations programs. But there have been a few other functions as well. From a leadership perspective, prior to Redis, I was working at Citrix as a director of security engineering, and I've also held positions in IBM's managed security services group for threat hunting and built the uh, security operations center for Truist Bank. In a prior life, I was working for the Air Force as in both an intelligence analyst and cyber warfare operator. And then on a more personal note, I reside in Raleigh, North Carolina with my wife and two kids.
0: Bob, that's a really, really interesting background. I'm looking forward to digging in on a couple of areas there. So can you tell us a little bit about your journey to becoming like Director of Security Operations at Redis? Yeah,
1: yeah. So I kind of fell into security by chance. So going back 10 years, I was working in a three-letter agency in the intelligence career field. And after active duty, I had signed up for the Air Force Reserves, but I didn't necessarily want to do intel work on the weekends. So I asked what other options were available. They said, "How about something with cybersecurity?" So, not knowing anything about it, I was like, "Yeah, sounds good." And uh, it kind of went from there. So after I graduated from what the Air Force calls tech school, I really just applied at places Mm -hmm. as a win. Ended up getting hired at Cisco as a security analyst. But because of my management experience in the military, they pushed me to that more of a manager role, and I started building my career from there. But There's definitely times where I feel almost guilty because I know how hard some people work to get into the security career field, and I kind of fell backwards into it.
0: That's all right. And also, it's not as if you didn't work incredibly hard to get into it. You just entered it a slightly different way. I'm sure the time in a three-letter agency, if I know anything about it, it's not necessarily the... uh, Yeah, it's not a walk in the park. Uh, Yeah, Yeah. I suppose that definitely did give you a ton of experience, presumably in... Obviously in intelligence, but also a little bit of background to you know adversaries and you know profile and things like that. So probably a, a great start in cyber. But you've seen security operations evolve like a lot. How would you describe the difference between the cybersecurity in the reserves versus in a large company like Cisco versus in a bank versus in like organizations like Citrix and Redis?
1: Yeah. So, you know, within the government, within those kind of infrastructures, there's different things to protect. They have ways to be able to look at frameworks a little bit differently. And obviously, there's different crown jewels, if you will, from you know, corporate environment, from a like government environment. But overall, I think it, it's changed in several ways. The first is just understanding what has become possible from an attacker standpoint over the years. Security has, for the most part, been retroactive in how they implement detection capabilities. And it's been extremely hard in, historically to be able to get in front of these tactics when there's so just many moving parts around around the infrastructure. So using frameworks help, and I think probably MITRE does the best job of that at the moment. Secondly, as organizations evolve around ways that they actually do business, the security teams need to have the ability to not only understand what those evolutions look like, but they also need to be able to demonstrate that they have an understanding of the new processes, technologies, applications that are implemented. Because when you know, you're know you going through an incident, you never know exactly where it's going to kind of pop up. So they need the ability to be able to see that, implement detection mechanisms, prevention mechanisms. And that's why I call security operations kind of a, a jack-of-all-trade career fields, because they need to be cognizant of the entire enterprise and not just one section of it. And then I would say, lastly, security teams, whether we view it as a pro or con, are are fairly dependent on the security tools that are given to them. So they've evolved their capabilities alongside the vendor space. Things like migration to cloud, EDR, CSPM tools, SOAR tools, and automation are things that 10 years ago, the industry didn't necessarily have at its disposal. And it's exciting. It's a fun time. It's a fun time to see all the changes. But while it's a great improvement, we've really still lacking on attracting the talent that understands all of these in and outs, all these changes and variables and how it affects the organization's security posture as
0: a whole. Yeah, it's really hard. I think everybody knows there's a huge lack of security folks that are just looking to get hired. And we're, we're all trying to do our best to get yeah get new people into the industry. How do you approach that? How do you approach trying to keep people engaged and try to you know get them to do their best work at Redis or in other organizations?
1: Yeah, so... You know, there is a real need for talent. It's definitely a hard sell with security operations and IRT, especially if you're staffing for nights and weekends. It's not a whole lot of people that want to work that. So the industry has kind of moved to a follow the sun model. But we as a community, I think we need to provide better on-the-job training opportunities. So even if a person is looking to break into cybersecurity, but it already exists within the organization, there's a lot of opportunity there because they already know the the industry. They already know the environment a little bit better than, than most people coming off of the streets. So I've had some success with that approach. And I hope the industry is able to kind of embrace that mentality to kind of make up for a lack of readily available talent.
0: Is that something that you implemented yourself? Or is that something that was, I suppose, widely widely accepted in organizations and widely done in organizations that you were joining?
1: I think people tend to look outside a little bit more. That's why you're seeing a lot of people jump around from job to job, trying to figure out what best suits them. You know, it's not a long tenure for security operations or IR unless you're in a really secure area. So I think that overall, there's definitely some discussion to have on whether we need to kind of embrace the scope change of how we look at hiring talent versus just trying to hire the next person that applies
0: to the job. Yeah, I think there's a whole load of relevant uh, things we could talk about there. One of the things that I really like about I suppose hiring from within, but also some of our customers and some great companies, they I suppose they use it to increase the diversity in cybersecurity. There's a lot of straight cisgendered, straight by guys in in cybersecurity, and it's a good way of saying, hey, there's actually a whole lot of talent. There's other ways of getting in. And also if you're working in a good organization, you can say, Hey, actually we are a great team and there's a there's a good culture and that you can bring in a whole lot of people there. I want to touch on one of the things that you said there though, which is that a lot of people in security operations, they don't have a long tenure. Why do you think that is?
1: I think it's a little bit of
0: it mixes with, you know, a little bit of burnout. I
1: think. I think that a lot of security analysts, a lot of security engineers are kind of looking for that place where they can really make a difference. And you being in the career field as well, you've been at places where it's not always really easy to implement the ideas of security. A lot of the times there's contradicting ways of looking at what security wants to do, and it usually butts heads with another objective from the business. So I think that really has a a way of kind of making people look. And then when there's opportunity coupled with that, with everyone just kind of hiring, I think that it provides a catalyst for people to kind of go out and and see what else is out there.
0: Nice. I definitely want to dive into that. So. Burnout and mental health is a huge challenge facing security engineers. And it is like there's a huge amount of like manual work, as we were kind of talking about. But what have you done or what have you seen great companies do to address that challenge?
1: Yeah, yeah. Burnout's hard, right? Uh, So I think it goes hand in hand with the trouble of us from staffing perspective. Companies expect so much from security and it's incredibly hard to gauge wins in security when things are working well. There's not a lot of people that are going to come out and say, Hey, nice work catching and removing that malware on, on a laptop over the last few months. It's kind of considered just business as, as usual. It's when things aren't working well. There's a large incident that takes place. That's when the hard questions come out. Like, why didn't we catch this? Why didn't we have coverage here? Why did it take so long for us to be, be able to determine what we determined? And I think that high pressure coupled with long hours on incidents can easily and understandably take its toll. So I would advise other security leaders to really dig into what's burning people out. It's not necessarily that they've spent two weeks without sleep during it. It's sometimes just getting burned out, just arguing with other teams on how to implement something. And I know that people say, hey, take some PTO time, take some time away, take some time for yourself. And I think that's really, really important, but sometimes suggesting TTO is only going to delay the outcome from the underlying issue or issues. And it's typically not a one size fits all approach and how people deal with burnout. So I think people really need to understand what's the underlying issue for, for the burnout.
0: Yeah, it's something that you also have to deal with very proactively, right? You can't react like ah, that person looks like they're like they're burnt out. We should set like we should send them on holidays. This to your point is not an approach that will will work. At that point, they have burned out and they will be looking for challenges elsewhere. You mentioned there security is often seen as like, it's, I'd love to dive into how you measure wins. But while we're there, or just before that, like you said, security is often arguing with other teams, like you've gone up through the ranks in security. And now you're, you know, you're directing you're managing a team. How do you deal with your peers in IT and tech ops and HR and sales? How do you, I suppose, showcase the work that you're doing to ensure that your team are being respected?
1: Yeah, you know, I think it depends on the group. It depends on what kind of goals the other group is given. For engineering teams, for instance, if the engineering team has is rated or ranked on how long or how you know much uptime an environment can have. When a security team comes in and says, Hey, you need to take this system down because it's compromised, it's not always accepted really, really freely. So I think that working with the groups, making sure that they understand the implications of the decisions and implications of the events that have occurred or may occur, is really key in making them care about security. A lot of teams don't necessarily care about it because they don't understand it.
0: Okay. So presumably, do you want to be able to help them understand? How do you go about that? Is that like building a security champions program? Is that embedding resources? Is that... I know there's no like easy answer here, but there's other people that are in similar situations but that don't have necessarily your experience. Is there any advice that you could give them to say, hey, this is how I've showcased the work that my team are doing?
1: Yeah, so making sure that they understand that it's not just helping security. It's not just a way for security. It's something that is going to, one, maybe we don't have to call you at two in the morning if something goes wrong and getting those processes and technologies integrated so they understand the
0: value that they're bringing. Yeah, I love it. Um, I want to dive in on something else that you were kind of talking a little bit about earlier as well, which is, you know, it does relate to burnout, but it is that manual work that security teams spend their time on that can help or can cause that burnout and leave people frustrated. What have you done in your career to help your teams reduce the amount of time they spend on those manual tasks?
1: So it's something we're always working on. I think understanding the areas where you can automate tasks organically, maybe by application, versus where you would need help from something like a SOAR platform. And I think SOAR tools are great for what they can deliver, but there's a lot of manual steps that still need to exist. Things like business approvals, justifications, adhering to different group processes. Sometimes teams are using or working out of multiple ticketing systems in in themselves. So a lot of the time behind the scenes, it's incredibly messy. It's not a straight line from, from A to B. So these tools can make life easier, but you just need to understand where they're going to need an injection of, of manual work. So third use case is like removing phishing emails. It's probably a good use case where you could take it from end to end, and there's not going to be a whole lot of production impact or a lot of people that are kind of getting up in arms about it. But if you take something more questionable, like malware like on a production system, let's say you have an EDR tool deployed that can quarantine the system itself. I don't know a lot of security teams that would be given the leeway to kick off an automation that would take down something in prod without approvals either from the business unit or even higher level executive management and that's where the automation chain breaks right so there's a requirement for human effort and i think there's that misconception out there that a lot of people you know that the products like a sore will be the
0: single solution for kind of that improved efficacy within an incident hundred percent. Yeah. Communication is absolutely an enormous part of it. But first of all, you can't automate something unless you have a process for it. But if you want to go ahead and take down a system in production, you're going to run into a huge amount of challenges. And worse, you're going to be burning a whole load of bridges. I think, yeah, there's times and places where you can uh, say, actually, this is something we need to do immediately. But no, uh, communicating, oftentimes, yeah, building those stakeholders and relationship management is is just as important as uh deploying a platform. You're not going to be successful unless you manage to communicate, unless you manage to, to get stakeholder buy-in. Do you have a a framework for identifying those tasks that you can automate or that you, like you mentioned phishing there? What is it about phishing? Is it that it's just not being touched by any other teams? So I think it's the low hanging fruit, right? The things that people aren't going to get necessarily
1: angry about if you're removing them. If you go and tell someone, hey, we're going to be removing a phishing email, that to them they're like, okay, go go do what you got to do. If you start saying, hey, we're going to take your workstation offline, then it becomes a little bit more troublesome for them. And they might might say, hey, but I need this. I need that. Let's talk about this. Once you start getting into production systems, things that have company-wide impact, that's when you're looking at multiple lines of approvals for something. So the lower the hanging fruit, the less impact it's going to have to a company overall, I think are going to be key to automation. The higher level type of things, those are going to require discussion.
0: But it's also that like if you manage to get rid of the lower hanging fruit, right? Hopefully the lower hanging fruit is where a lot of yeah. Yeah, yeah, a lot of folks are like spending their time and then you can allow your team to focus on things that are more important and things that are more exciting that are like yeah, actually sure. gonna help you help you improve the risk posture of your of your organization, right? Yeah, yeah,
1: absolutely. If you can clean out the noise then, and allow your your analysts and engineers to be able to focus on on more pressing matters, I think that's a great use case for, for automation.
0: You kind of touched on the MITRE ATT&CK framework and you like adhering to frameworks in some of your roadmap decisions. How have you found yeah using those to to generate ideas or assign work to the team or assign quarterly goals to the team?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. So the frameworks for me at least provide kind of an overview of where you still need work done. So let's take the MITRE framework, for instance. If we look at the different tactics that MITRE provides, we can certainly see like from beginning to end where in the kill chain we have the most coverage, for instance. So if you're able to kind of align that and say, hey, look, we have a lot of coverage in certain areas within this kill chain, but we're really lacking here. There's a whole process that we can kind of create to capture some of these these visibility gaps. And if that's through threat hunting, if that's through automation, if that's hiring a vendor to come in and look and reevaluate some of the detection mechanisms we have, that's something that is incredibly valuable to leaders.
0: Nice. Like you've, again, worked in a huge number of uh, different industries and you've seen security evolve. Like what sort of advice would you have for somebody that is joining or starting to lead a security team in a fast-growing tech company like Redis?
1: Yeah, be fluid. Understand business requirements. Clearly communicate what you can do with what you have and don't really over promise on on some of the commitments that that you're given. So a lot of small companies, especially startups, aren't going to have the budget to buy all the bells and whistles and cool toys that maybe a larger organization can prioritize in their budget. So don't let that get you frustrated. And I know you said one piece of advice, but this kind of goes hand in hand. So That's okay.
0: Yeah. No, it's, I think nobody's going to be like, I said one piece of advice, that's all.
1: <laughs> so I would say the other one, and it's, it's probably just as, as important, is really listen to your analysts, your individual contributors, the engineers, the people that are in the environment day in and day out. You'd be really surprised at how many leaders will prioritize the new and shiny versus focusing on on kind of underlying fundamentals. And in my opinion, that that's a huge mistake. So visibility for any environment is key. And if you don't have that, the likelihood that the
0: SecOps team is going to be successful is very low. Yeah, you have to listen to, uh, absolutely have to listen to what's going on in the ground. How much do you think your career in the military affected that or affected your outlook on that?
1: I don't know. That's that's a good question. I I know that people coming from the military tend to be focused a little bit more on routine, I would say. So I think that if we're, we're looking at it from that perspective, just trying to figure out what you need to build on that routine is something that has benefited me in my career.
0: Nice. So again, you've seen security evolve. What do you think security operations teams will look like in five years' time?
1: I think we've begun to see a transition from your classic SecOps teams already. So traditionally, you had a security team and then the rest of the company. And historically, an analyst might get an alert, but they might have to go to another business unit for validation. And it works, but oftentimes they're wasting a lot of time on it. So especially if a company has an international presence and the security team is kind of messaging off hours, at 2 a.m. for maybe non-validated security alerts. So it's increasingly more apparent that security teams need representation throughout the company and throughout the business. I think that there's a couple of good examples that exist today. So newer hybrid functions like DevSecOps is a good example. Another one's like Fusion Center, we've heard that concept before. So maybe there's multiple lines of business that can come together that can be represented by security anywhere in the business. So maybe in five years we can integrate into the business so far, they won't necessarily be thought of as security alerts and they're more of critical business alerts that get routed to the right people. And if we can do that, we can cut down on the time and hopefully obviously reduce any kind of dwell time in the environment for for the adversaries
0: yeah it is really funny that like tech ops teams seem to have i suppose we're, we're almost behind it and tech ops teams they seem to have managed that process and i guess i'm talking for cloud first companies here but they seem to have managed that process pretty well where like a an outage is considered a real like business issue and it's not so much like sometimes it is there's finger pointing or blame apportioned but it is still like everybody rallies around everybody sees just how important it is to invest in uh invest in re- resiliency and invest in Again, yeah, you know, making sure that your technology is up to date. And even with IT now, it's seen, actually, we have to stay ahead. So it'd be, yeah, it'd be great to see um, so security operating at the same level. I know you talked about, like, you obviously talked about SOAR, you talked a little bit about CSPM and a few other technologies. What are you excited about for, like, coming down the line? Or is there anything that you're like, ah, this is uh, this is what's next. This is what I'm, I'm looking out for. I'm really looking to, you know, p- pin some of my hopes on, I suppose.
1: Yeah, so we've seen a lot of, Supply chain attacks over the past couple of years. We've seen more companies move completely to cloud and the way that security works within certain aspects of those functions. It's bits and pieces. I would say there's a lot of opportunity to be able to kind of conglomerate all of that into one focus, one area. And right now, so if you look at like AWS versus GCP, AWS has things like Guard Duty, has things like CloudTrail, then you switch over to GCP and it's Security Command Center. So you may or may not have a one-to-one ratio on coverage if you're using multiple clouds. So I think that there's a real opportunity and I think CSPM is making inroads into that as far as being able to holistically look around all of your infrastructure, all of your build pipelines, everywhere that there might be an opportunity that, you know, your traditional EDR agents might not be to detect
0: yeah nice along similar lines how are you enabling or how are you equipping your team for that future
1: so i think it goes back into trying to evolve with the business and as we see these new technologies come up obviously they're improving and obviously they're changing all the time so trying to get people out of the mindset of that you need a specific tool or you need something that is going to be able to that you used in your maybe your last job that you're gonna need that to be successful at your new job is gonna be something that I think over the next probably half a decade, we're gonna to have to really kind of convince analysts that they're gonna to have to change their mindset to be able to look at these new, new technologies, new ways of doing business.
0: I think with security analysts, at least in my experience, their job is to basically be thrown into a, you know, a slightly confusing environment where something may or may not have happened and try to like orientate and figure out what's happened. So they should be in good shape, like understand that the landscape is as quickly as possible, so you should be in, in good shape to adapt. But it's still definitely going to be a really interesting challenge over the next few years for leaders and for analysts themselves. But on the good side, there's a huge amount of opportunity for people to take on more responsibility and to grow, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think that we'll probably see some additional functions come out of there. So, you know,
1: uh, splitting off of tech ops, you have things like threat hunting, threat intelligence. I think as the industry grows, as the new ways of doing business are kind of adaptive, it's going to be something where we can kind of go out and create additional functions within security operations itself.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I think that's all we're going to have time for, I'm afraid, Andy, but this has been a real pleasure. If people want to follow your career, want to want to get in touch, what's the best way to do it? Again, thanks for having me. I'm out on LinkedIn. I think there might be another one or two Andy DeMichaels out there, but I think you'll be able to find me. All right. Well, best of luck, and I hope you come on again in the future. Thanks, Thomas. Much appreciated. Thanks for listening to the Future of Security Operations podcast by Tynes. If you enjoyed today's show, please do us a favor and leave us a review on Apple Podcast or your preferred podcast platform. For additional episodes, visit tynes.com slash podcast. And if you'd like to learn more about how Tynes Automation Platform can transform your security operations team, visit tynes.com. Thanks again, and I'll catch you on the next episode.